1: So you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.
2: Welcome to the New Books
1: Network. Uh, hello everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Psychoanalysis, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host today, and I'm interviewing Dominique Scarfoni and Avi Sakitopulo about their book, The Reality of the Message, published by my favorite publisher, The Unconscious in Translation. Um, we could talk a lot about that, but we won't, because we have other things to talk about. And I'd say, you know, it's such a pleasure to interview two of my favorite authors for the same book. And I say they're my favorite authors because a lot of psychoanalytic literature I read nowadays feels a little bit, sometimes kind of stale or, yeah, that's already been said. And I like to read people who are sort of making psychoanalysis relevant, current, pushing it ahead. And I feel like both Dominique and Avi do that in their books. Um, and so now we've got both of them at the same time, which was just it's terribly exciting. So let me say a bit about um, each of them, and then we'll jump into some questions about this book. Again, the book is called The Reality of the Message. Remind me at some point to ask why the title, because I remember I came across in the book and I thought, oh, that's why it's called The real- Reality of the Message, but now I can't remember. But um, Dominic Scarfoni is a member emeritus of the Montreal Psychoanalytic Society which is the French branch of the Canadian Psychoanalytic Society. He has practiced psychoanalysis for over 40 years, honorary professor in the Department of Psychology, University of Montreal, where as a full professor, he taught psychoanalytic theory and taught graduate students for 25 years. Avi Saki Topolo, I hope I'm saying your name right, Saki Topolo, Uh, A Cypriot and Greek analyst on faculty at the New York University postdoctoral program in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis, where she also trained. In 2021, she co-chaired the conference La Planche in the States, the sexual and the cultural. I hope I'm saying that. Should I say the sexual, but we'll get into that, and the cultural. The first U.S. conference dedicated to the work of La Planche. She is the author of Sexuality Beyond Consent, and co-author with Anne Pellegrini of Gender Without Identity. So welcome to the program, Dominique and and Abi. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And so the question we're supposed to start off with, sort of according to our custom at New Books and Psychoanalysis, why did you write this book? But that didn't feel quite like the right question for me this time. So let me tell you why I think you wrote the book, and then you can tell me if I'm right or wrong. But I think you wrote the book. And the reason it works for me is because it kind of looks at Freud through the lens of a new, let's call it a new theorist, or a, a theorist named Jean Laplanche, who is a French psychoanalyst, who to me really brings Freud to life. Uh, and maybe even rescues Freud from where I think Freud perhaps went astray, and uh, makes uh, a psychoanalysis terribly relevant to to now. So, would you say, Dominique, that's a good way? Was that what you were trying to do in this book, or what were you doing?
2: Well, I think you you captured some of the of the gist of it, but. Uh, i need to say of course the book is made of a collection of papers uh, which revolve around uh, psychoanalysis as read into freud by jean laplanche i think you are perfectly right in that respect one thing i must say however is that the first the project at first was meant to just introduce the papers and i had asked Avgi, if she would be so kind to write a preface to to the book. And she came up with the idea of not writing a preface, but rather asking me questions after each of those chapters, papers. And I thought this was such a brilliant idea because it would re-inject life into what, well, when you have a paper that was already published, you always have a sense that it's done and it's in the past somehow. But with algis intervention, this came up to life again and it was such a thrilling experience to have to go through those writings and uh, really respond to her very exigent uh, way of uh, reading, and I underline the exigency here because it's uh, it's an important keyword, as perhaps we will be able to understand later.
1: Well, okay, so Avi, on this on this topic of rescuing Freud, I don't. You've probably taught Freud, or you know, you teach Freud. I know when I. In the past, was asked to do some teaching of Freud. I was kind of dismayed because I thought, "How am I going to teach him without just sort of being overly negative about a lot of the th- problems I see in Freud?" Now I think if if I go back and teach Freud, I, I have a a way to to think about Freud's work that really brings it to life for me. But what's your experience um, of I don't know of teaching Freud and of do you do you teach Freud through the lens of the planche or Understand Freud through through that lens. Uh,
0: before I say something about Freud, I want to say something about Dominique. Okay. Um, like to your question about like writing this book, like my my participation in this book has to do with pleasure. Like I just love thinking with Dominique out loud and. It's, it's always been so fun. Dominique and I had been meeting for a very long time, um, having conversations initially, reading stuff together and having conversations and then just exploring our ideas with each other. And it's always been kind of like incredible nerd fun to, to think with him. And it has been also very exciting because Dominique sees theory as something very alive which is how i say theory as well not as something inert or something that is just cerebral or intellectual but something that is pulsating so this project has been extremely fun to work on um, especially as new things came up and dominique was was really game to go in a number of different directions with me like every time i said how about here he was like let's do it and he would just you know, like he followed me and I followed him and kind of like, it's been such a fun book to work on. Um, and I, I wanted to mention this because that's how I see kind of like teaching Freud too. Like, I think that if your relationship with theory is embodied and kind of like you don't respond to it in the way, I mean, there's so many ways in which psychoanalysis gives us a version of theory that is completely, I mean, I have to say boring um, and it doesn't have to be this way. Like... Obviously, like many people are reading Freud in really interesting ways, but there are also ways, I think, that we're so frightened of the exigency of the unconscious and of what comes up for us in the consulting room and in the teaching room that we dampen things down. And one of the things that made me want to work with Dominique to begin with and eventually was really thrilled to expand the project into conversations was the fact that he's one of the most daring, interesting, and exciting thinkers to go in these directions with. Um, Freud has never felt flat um, to me, especially in thinking um, about him through Dominique. And I inevitably now read him through La Planche.
1: Uh-huh. Now, you both have used the word exigency, and I'm thinking, now why didn't that word stick in my brain after reading this book? But can you briefly say, what what is the
2: exigency of, what am I missing? Well, back in 1987, Jean Laplanche was here in Montreal, and uh, there was a group here, a study group that had been reading him page after page, you know, from up close and at one point he asked us would you be so kind to write the index to to my book you know the the, his most important book which is uh, um, new foundations for psychoanalysis and uh, so we started looking for the words the keywords that really struck us and of course there are many but one of them which nobody had picked up earlier was exigency. It's it's all over in Laplanche's work and it's, uh, to him, and I think he's perfectly right in that respect, the, the exigency of the object of research that is the unconscious, that is that uh, we, we cannot, and, and this what is what Laplanche admired most in Freud, even when, as you said, Freud goes astray sometimes what is striking is that he never loses track of the of the object that he's pursuing because he is following this exigency that is inherent to the very idea of unconscious and which forces you to reorganize your thinking differently from how you do it when you address the conscious uh the conscious part or the 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 conscious ideas there is a there is a law of attraction so to speak uh from uh, the unconscious that forces you to never neglect some aspect that that our conscious ego would eagerly uh you know uh dismiss or do away with so this is something inherent in laplanche's way of uh, reading and uh, questioning freud uh, very re- with a high sense of respect for this aspect in freud which is transmitted to us by laplanche himself because laplanche's method of reading freud is freud's freud's method actually so that it's it's a question that not that it disregards the contents of Freud's ideas, but certainly puts above everything else the method that Freud invented as really the, the 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 essential part of psychoanalysis. And when Laplanche uses it, he teaches us how to, in turn, ourselves apply that method, and therefore we are caught in the, in this uh, chain of exigency i would say that is so uh, such a powerful tool okay
1: well i think that's a good segue into the 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 question i did have prepared which was you you mentioned somewhere that um Laplanche distinguishes between the the i think you had the capital s sexual sexual and adaptation me, meaning um, you know, so often people in the world of therapy and uh, clinical work, we end up so easily in the world of adaptation. How do we help our clients adapt to the world better? Um, and uh, Laplanche, I guess, was clear, and Freud too, that the object of, of psychoanalysis is not to make people more better adapted to the world, but the object of psychoanalysis is... Well, in Laplanchine, it would be the, the sexual. So, so I guess I want to throw this question to Avi: When you're working with people psychoanalytically who come to you, what are you doing? <laughs> what do you? How do you think about the work you're doing with them? What's it all about? Is it about the sexual?
0: I mean, it's. Uh... I mean, certainly the question of adaptation has preoccupied psychoanalysts for a very long time, even when it does not appear that our object is adaptational. Um, so there's the adaptation of kind of like, you know, to to love and to work. Like there's that version of adaptation, like from Freud. And then there's the adaptation of... Um, Kind of like how how does one live within a society that has certain kind of like d- makes certain demands of oneself and prioritizes certain understandings of who one could or should be? Um, and I, I f- when i when I work um, i I'm not often drawn to these because to me, these feel like distractions for what it means to be actually sitting with Patience and being present in the moment with the sorts of intensities and dysregulations that arrive in the consulting room as a result of the transference uh, and as a result of the ways in which the analysts offer, like the mere fact that I am I'm sitting there and I'm waiting and I've, I've made myself available for a certain kind of use that I cannot fully predict, neither can I control. Um, that opens things up to certain kind of phenomena, and I'm interested in what happens in those domains. Um, th- that requires, I think, a kind of bracketing from what happens outside the consulting room, which is not to say that it is unimportant or that it doesn't also come into the work. But for me, what is most critical about about that is also allowing a certain, a certain suppleness or like what um, Lyotard has called passibilité concept that Dominique also talks a lot about in the book. The question of like how to allow oneself to be besieged by something, not, not to make that happen, neither to resist it, but how to be um, as an analyst welcoming, even though that sounds too conscious, and I don't mean it this way, of the sorts of perturbations that happen when like, the unconscious of the patient just opens up, and the hope is for it to open up, like for, uh, Laplanche will say in moments that feel extremely inspiring to me, that the work is not about adaptation, it's about keeping the wound open. And that has felt extremely important. It's very influential in my own thinking and very influential in how I think about the work, though, by keeping the wound open, he's not talking about torturing patients or kind of like making them kind of like stay with content, the things that are difficult content wise, but about staying with the exigency of the unconscious, even when the ego wants to close that up and, Give something or p- provide an experience for the patient that is more about being organized. Um, now, of course, one cannot have a psychoanalysis that vibrates on that frequency every single moment. This, um, you know, like, there's many, many moments when we do all kinds of other things. But for me, those moments and the possibility of these moments uh, is is very critical to what distinguishes psychoanalytic work from other kinds of therapeutic work.
1: Uh huh. Yeah. I remembering. Some anecdotes at the beginning of your book, "Sexuality Without Consent," that bring together ideas of wounding and openings and <laughs> sexuality. And but I, I guess Dominique, um, do, do you have anything to add to that in terms of the object? Yeah,
2: yes, I would like to add a few things. Just to mention, I subscribe totally to what. Avgi just said. Uh, however, I, I want to go back to the idea of adaptation. Uh, we know that it was introduced as the fourth metapsychological point of view uh, by ego psychologists back in the 40s and 50s. And, um, and it's, not, it's not by pure chance that we have this connection adaptation and ego psychology, because the ego is indeed always trying to adapt to the circumstances but it if we concentrate on the ego and adaptation well it so happens that we leave behind the essential discovery uh, made by freud which is that we are uh, animated by something that by definition is not adaptable which is really the unconscious and the sexual which laplanche picks up is in with the german term on purpose just to dis, even distinguish it from sexuality in general the sexual the drive is something that is rebel to uh, to to any adaptation and we have to we have to struggle with it all our lives and in in practical terms uh, when you ask what is the object is if not adaptation is the sexual the object of psychoanalysis or of our work i i would you know just uh, mention that laplanche uh, asks of the analyst to make an active dismissal for the for the time of the session of dismissing whatever is adaptive, whatever belongs to self-preservation, to the practicalities of daily life. Mm. And if you do that, if you actively ignore those aspects, which doesn't mean that you have to uh, impede your patients from talking about them, but in your listening, you have to try and always think that there there is there uh, an invitation to collude with the patient's ego and if you resist that what you observe is the emergence of uh, a a more um, uh, evident transference and the transference it so happens is uh, animated I would say by the sexual so it's not that we inject the sexual where it is not it's rather that we we clear the way for the emergence of the sexual in the session, which will emerge uh, through, essentially through the transference.
1: Okay, well, so let's stay with the sexual a little more because, as everybody knows, even people who know nothing about psychoanalysis, they know Freud was all about sex, and uh, and they, most people have probably heard about infantile sexuality, and this is where I got hung up for a long time. And, and I'm have been so helped by Laplanches, I kind of understood Freud's idea of in, infantile sexuality as I, I guess we could say in an innatist sense in the sense that um, some I thought Freud was saying and I think he kind of was that infants and small children have sexual feelings um, towards their caregivers uh, Of course, he broke this down into the component instincts, the components of sexual feelings, through the the mouth, the anus, the 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 genitals. Uh, But he still called these sexual in the infantile sexuality, and I obviously was dubious about um, whether this was a sort of an an adult imposition on children of something that they weren't actually experiencing. Yes, they're experiencing pleasure through their bodies sometimes. but I didn't really buy that they sexually desired their parents, which I think is how um, And sometimes I'll have clients sort of jokingly say, oh, are you trying to say that I want to sleep with my mother or sleep with my father? So what about that? Is, is that what Freud meant? Was he wrong? What's another way to look at it? I don't know who's this question for. Maybe, maybe Dominic on this one. Yeah, Either yeah. one of you.
2: Okay. Well, it, well, it's a vast question, of course, but you, you are really uh, touching a central aspect of what Laplanche is uh, contributing to psychoanalysis, which is, as you, as you seem to uh, suggest, is a, is a way of salvaging Freud from an impasse because Freud indeed had the idea that infantile sexuality was inborn, uh, which would be a strange thing. Uh, you know, uh, my view of Freud is is that he was, you know, he's often presented as a Lamarckian in terms of uh, a theory of evolution, but he was he was very deeply involved with darwin he was a darwinian through and through but for a darwinian it would be strange to see sexuality happen twice <laughs> during the development of the individual once in early infancy and then at puberty it, it can always be possible and but this du- biphasic uh, appearance of uh, of sexuality is something that can be observable except that Freud, when he tried to uh, account for the presence of infantile sexuality, he also had to refer to inborn uh, uh, primal fantasies which is also another complication and another very difficult thing to uh, account for uh, if we stay with Darwin and with uh, genetic transmission and so on. It doesn't, it doesn't stand the test of reason that complex sceneries were, scenarios were mm-hmm. transmitted uh, phylogenetically. Uh, but Laplanche noticed that Freud actually did not need to go into that sort of reasoning that he had everything he needed in his first theory of seduction if only he had noticed that besides the empirically datable uh, events of actual seduction that are the case unfortunately we know that children can be abused and still are uh, and the numbers are 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 very preoccupying in 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 that sense but that what, no matter what there is a seduction that happens between adults and children the the caretakers and their children and that this is the source of infantile sexuality so we can subscribe to Freud's biphasic uh, course of, of uh, the events regarding sexuality, that is infantile sexuality and then puberty and biological sexual maturation, but that these two phases are of a totally diverse nature and that infantile sexuality is acquired in the interchange with the adult caretakers. Now there's something uh, very quickly that I want to dispel immediately. It does not mean, in Laplanche's idea at least, that the adult is injecting something sexual in the child. What what reaches the child is something emanating from the sexual Uh, from the sexual endowment of the adult, which the adult cannot help but uh, exudate, so to speak, in their relation to the child but this reaches the child as something that Laplanche calls enigmatic or compromised. So it's nothing that you can observe as sexual at the reception point uh, in the child except that the child and this is where Freud was in part right. The child's body is a body that is excitable, is a body that is sexually aroused, except that the word sexual here has a much wider meaning than what we usually think of as sexual excitement, that is uh, uh, genital excitation, for instance. It's more broadly the fact that the body responds to every Uh, excess in the communication with its specificity which is to be an excitable erogenous body and therefore if we agree to give to the word sexual a broader sense which has to do with excitement which which is in the child it's a non-orgasmic excitement uh, but it nevertheless becomes a, a very strong motive for the child to try and understand more of what is going on because the, the, their own response, their own bodily response re, uh, resumes the enigmatic uh, nature of the communication. It becomes an internal enigma at that point and the child wants to know what goes on with within it, itself and will will look for explanations and will forge theories in order to account for uh, their experience. So, in a way, Freud was right, biphasic sexuality, with all that also entails in terms of uh, the efforts at understanding what goes on. But in my view, following Laplanche, and uh, I think Avgier also agrees, we don't need to uh, look for a biological innate source of that sexuality, except in the very nature of the body, of everyone's body, which is to be Mm. an excitable body. Uh
0: I mean, I would add to this, um, kind of like when, when Dominique talks about how Laplanche takes us from the biologism in Freud to the notion that there's something always already allocentric about the sexual. Um, we're also now beginning to move to a way of thinking about infantile sexuality that is quite different than thinking about the sexual, as Dominique was saying. So there's a really um, lovely phrase in La Planche I think it's in new foundations uh, where he says that kind of like he critiques the, the the notion of pansexuality in Freud the idea that every Freud thought that everything was about sex and he says by point of clarification he says sexuality is not everything but it it's not everywhere but it is in everything mm-hmm. Um And the way that Dominique phrases it in one of the papers that we actually discuss in this paper is he says there's a sexual lining to everything. Mm -hmm. And by sexual lining or the notion that sexuality is in everything does not mean that there's always a sexual motive in the sense that people have sex on their minds all the time. And that is kind of like it's not a motivational theory, but rather here sexuality or rather the infantile sexual is doing very different kind of labor the labor that the infantile sexual is doing in this theory is to give a name for the the kind of experiences that could get gathered under the the category of things that have happened but have not been experienced except as potential um, inscriptions um, that inscribe a void, that inscribe an absence that the infant then has to somehow respond to, and which, as Dominique was saying, in the apre can actually become traumatic or become um, such that the theory of time, um, Freud's theory of time, which um, Lacan then opens up and Laplanche takes really, kind of like opens up that accordion, is quite closely related to thinking about the sexual um. So when you were asking earlier, when you said, like, you know, I've never been convinced that all children desire uh, their parent, I think it's also important to remember that that Freud's write the three, writes, Freud writes the three essays four times or rather he revises it four times. And by the time he's done with the fourth revision uh, in 05, in 10, in 15, and in 24, by the time he's done with the the fourth revision, the essay is almost unrecognizable. It has gone in a very different direction than where it was at the beginning. And uh, Van Auta and Westering have done a translation of the 1905 version alone, because it's very hard to read the 1924 edition and just then note... Kind of like all of these footnotes. Oh, this section didn't exist, or it existed, but it took he took it out in 1910. Or the comment about sexual variation disappears in 1915. It, it becomes very hard to have a sense of like where did he start and why? Where did he go? And Van Aude and Westering have a really good um, have some have done some really important work showing us the trajectory of Freud's thinking and showing us that this idea that all children desire their parents is actually much much later Freud. You don't get this until mm-hmm. kind of like mid-tens and onwards. In 1905, you don't have anything like that. The mm-hmm. infantile sexual is not at all um, mm-hmm. kind of like, it's It's not even, it, it's, it's about, more about component instincts, uh, component drives. Um, it's more dispersed. Um, he's not as interested yet in the banding together of the sexual into the instinct. Um, and what Laplanche really underlines with his intervention is to kind of like pull out these points where Freud kind of like goes, as he calls it, astray. And by going astray, he means that like something happens. This is where Laplanche reads Freud with the Freudian method. He becomes interested in how is it that Freud is going in one direction and then somehow he takes a turn. And those turns tend to have in common a kind of Ptolemy closure around his own theorizing.
1: (laughs)
2: Yes, and I would like to say a word about desire, infantile desire. Uh, you know, it's. Uh, I think uh, the problem is that when we use such a word as desire, we immediately project something from the adult world. I wish I could remember the title of the movie. Uh, it goes to the early 2000s, uh, the internet was starting and the, this was a movie about a child that has been attracted by an adult under a through email under a false uh, pretext and uh, brought into uh, having to meet with the adult and there was a danger of sexual abuse there and so on. But the, the part that I want to to uh, Underline here is when, uh, at some point in the conversation between this adult and and the child who was three and a half or four here, he or perhaps five, he, he had just learned how to how to type on the computer, and it was about uh, you know, uh, I don't know if I don't remember if the word was used of being sexually intimate together, and the child said yes. And when they when they tried to explicate what this would be would consist of, what we what we learned is that the child had the idea we will be side by side and defecate together at the same time. <laughs> Which I thought was a beautiful a beautiful illustration of what it's about about the what Ferenzi called the confusion of tongues between adults and children. That is that the word uh, you know when we think of infantile sexuality, we really have to let go of the preformatted uh, idea of sexual and look, look at it from the infantile point of view, where sleeping with the mother, it's very exciting. It's very sexually loaded, but in the child's mind, may well very may very well mean, you know, uh, lying beside the mother and sleeping and actually sleeping. <laughs> so there's this confusion of tongues, which must never be left out of the equation. I think. Yeah.
1: So I'm going to summarize a few things I heard from both of you. First of all, the idea of what's inborn, I heard what's inborn is our, our, our biological disposition to have an excitable body. And then that comes into contact with, uh, I've used the word allo, allocentric, right? Uh, Meaning Mm -hmm. from the other. So from the other comes this encounter with that, let's call it adult sexuality, um, and then the infant begins to try to translate, what is this all about? So this little boy in the example just gave, <laughs> inscribed, <laughs> his encounter with adult sexuality was inscribed in sense of defecating, uh, pleasurably with somebody else. Um, uh, and that, that, so obviously one thing got inscribed, this is your concept of uh, translation, which is, symbolizing, inscribing, but then something gets left out, obviously, a huge thing got left out and that this child didn't know about, and that goes into the unconscious. So this idea was so helpful to me because after I read this book, as clients came in the door, I started thinking, what are they still trying to figure out? What are they still wrestling to inscribe, to interpret, to translate about their lives? Um, And I found it really um, kind of a useful heuristic to just sort of sit with my clients, appreciating that they have this sexual unconscious that they've never been able to make sense of that came to them from the enigmatic transmissions from their parents or other people. And that uh, our job is to help them continue to work through bringing meanings and and bringing out of the repressed into symbolization. Is that a kind of a fair synopsis of the the project, psychoanalytic sort of project? Either you want to say anything about that?
0: I mean, I would make several edits to this. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you said that it's about the infant's contact with adult sexuality, that is not wrong but it's also not exactly right because what the infant comes into contact with is not the adult sexuality in the sense that the adult is a sexual person and may have sexual fantasies and sexual preferences but the infant comes into contact with in addition to all of that some of which may be explicitly communicated and some of which may be implicitly communicated or communicated in a nonverbal way the enigmatic is something else it's over and above even that which is communicated nonverbally. It is about the adult's sexual unconscious, which is not by which Laplanche does not refer to that thing that the adult is unaware of, which has to do with sexuality, but specifically about that which resists organization, and which is, um, which has kind of like this is a phrase that Dominique uses, where kind of like the gradient of resistance against meaning is caused by this sexual unconscious. So, when you said like, well, I'm thinking now maybe my patients come to me and maybe the point is to work through what has kind of like what they have in their sexual unconscious, Um, I I would agree that part of what can happen, though not necessarily being the point, is that in an analysis, things can acquire new meanings, but that's not the same thing as working through because there's nothing to work through in the sexual unconscious what is there in the sexual unconscious is not the parents' conflicts or the parents' ambivalences or the parents' sadism or their hatred or their overattachment to their child, of which they are unaware or the ways in which their own trauma has kind of like traveled down the kind of like the generation um, or their own intergenerational trauma has traveled down the generation. It's not about that. It's about how all of these are even the, the, the less... The more dissociated things that we're unaware of and are kept out of our conscious awareness even those have an enigmatic surcharge and it is that which has to do with the sexual and the sexual unconscious and when you said like you know some of my patients come with their sexual unconscious still quite this is not the word you use but it had the quality of like still active like my thought was lucky them (laughs) like you know that's part of like how anything changes kind of like in psychic life, it's because we have a sexual unconscious that there is a chance that something can, th- there's, there can be this sense of continuous uh, possibility for detranslation and retranslation. Without a sexual unconscious, we, we would be stuck in whatever translations we have without the perturbation and th- the thorn on the skin of the ego, as Laplanche mm-hmm. calls it. So from that perspective, It's not a problem from the ego's perspective, it's a problem. But from a metapsychological perspective, that's actually the domain of possibility for psychoanalytic thinking and psychoanalytic work.
2: Yes, and I would add to that, that uh, actually the problems that our patients bring to us is their translations, Mm -hmm. is their, their meanings that they have built all their life around this enigmatic core within them and which proved uh, either too rigid or uh, too too limited or whatever and which brought them to some impasse. We know that our patients come to us after having struggled for years and trying to find a solution on their own without the help of someone else. And when they come to us, it's because they have tried everything They have tried every possible new stance, uh, to say, in their lives, and finally they give up and they say, okay, I'm I'm going to bring that to someone who will listen to it. Now, our job, uh, and Laplanche insists a lot on this, and this is where perhaps the translational model that he advocated, starting from Freud, can be misunderstood because... uh, we are prone to understanding, okay, so I'm the analyst, the interpreter, and therefore the translator. I will translate for my patient. Uh, Laplanche says, no, it's the opposite. You have to work and help your patient let go of their previous translations, de-translate these matters in order to give a chance to what La- what you uh, was uh, mentioning just now, to the, the, the drive, the push uh, from the sexual unconscious to incite to new translations, to provoke new formulations, which will, of course, with the assistance of the analyst, may be more open-ended, more... Uh, prone to evolution, and therefore, if we go back to the idea of adaptation, to a certain better adaptation to the fact of having an unconscious. It's not adapting the unconscious, but adapting the subject in such a way that, as Freud put it near the end of his life, where he wrote, where it was, their ego shall be, which is a, a very poor translation, in fact, but which can be understood not that the id is transformed into something else, that the unconscious is uh, dried up, so to speak, and he Freud himself makes, I think, this, this mistake of uh, comparing this to drying up a, a lake or a sea. Uh, it's not that, it's just having the subject the i the ego if you want of the subject being more at ease dwelling in the in the neighborhood of uh, of the of the of the unconscious of the drives and having uh, being able to pass better deals so to speak with with their desires mm-hmm.
0: I mean, I would, if I may add something here, and I think that you would agree with this, Dominique, but I I also want to see if we can bring in some of the new ideas that Dominique expresses in this book that are not in his previous uh, papers, because, you know, when Dominique was talking about, like, perhaps the new translation will be a better adaptation, I think it's very important to underline that he said it would be a better adaptation to the fact of having an unconscious, not to the existing social order. No. Right? Right. So I think that this is critical because we hear adaptation and we immediately think adapt to the world, adapt right. to what other people need of us. Mm-hmm. The adaptation to, to, to the fact of having an unconscious, of course, never means that the unconscious stops chattering. Uh, the unconscious, will; the, it will always be a force. We will always have to negotiate it. But here is where Dominique kind of like really kind of like opens up uh, an idea that is in some of his other works, but here I think gets fleshed out much more clearly, um, which has to do with the critique that you were just mentioning, Dominique, about uh, Laplanche's notion of translation. And what Dominique suggests is that we need to think not of translation, uh, or at least not only of translation, because of these because of how the word can trick us into imagining that there's a correct and incorrect way of doing it, but that we need to be thinking more with a notion of transduction, which is more about the transformation of forms of energy, one form of energy to another. Um, And in, in chapter four of the book, so the book is organized, we should say this, it's organized with... like papers that Dominique has already published um, that are being republished here and followed. Each chapter is followed by a long conversation between us, kind of like playing with these different ideas and to kind of like borrow a phrase of Dominique's, seeing if we can make some concepts blink um, and (laughs) open up so that they can kind of like become more luminous and call us back into them to revisit them. And that's indeed what happens because when you think with Dominique, like everything kind of like opens up that way in a really exciting way. But there's a moment in chapter four where you quote Dominique kind of like this idea that the the eye is a theory of light, Um, Mm -hmm. right? So this idea is that rather than that, that our body and our own translational processes turn one form of energy into another, so the eye is not just perceiving energy, it converts it into something else. So you could say, well, you know, as human beings, we have a limited range of like what the frequency of light is that we can perceive. But this act of translate transducing one form of energy to another also produces something new, which is not the same thing as perception. Um, it's not the same thing as perceiving, Dominique says, just what is out there but converting it into something else as a way of it becoming now. Now it becomes your experience. Now it is what you're seeing as opposed to the thing that's happening out there. There's something about this notion of transduction and how you talk about it in relation to translation, Dominique, that I think that some... I wonder if some of our listeners may not be interested in what you're saying about that because it's such an interesting intervention.
1: And I think I would want (laughs) to... Unpack that further, but mm. let me kind of stick with the line of questioning that around this sexual unconscious, mm. which is the thing that everybody's trying to translate or, or transduce. Um, why do we call it sexual? So here's where I I feel mm. like Carl Jung, who you know was was sort of asking Freud yeah libido isn't libido just the life energy? and Freud was saying, no, it's actually about something more specifically mm-hmm. in regard to human sexual behavior, but why isn't this sexual why isn't this unconscious that we all have just about our encounter with the enigmatic otherness of the world and the people we come in contact with and, and we go through life translating it, which means some of it gets missed translated mistransduced trans trend, <laughs> whatever uh, anyway you know what my question is here why do we call it specifically the sexual
2: it's a very good question a very important one because it's it's so misleading in in many ways uh, if we lose sight of one aspect which uh, Avgi mentioned, Earlier, and it's the temporal dimension, the very special temporal uh, structure of our unconscious functioning, which is summarized by the expression "apricou." Uh, this is the French word that is gaining more and more traction, even in English. But uh, when Streczy, when James Strachey had to translate the expression from the German, in the German it's nechtreglichkeit. He translated this as deferred action, you know, as a, which conveys the idea of a time bomb, for instance, that you you start now and it will explode in X hours. So this is a deferred action. But in Freud, when we read Freud from up close, as Laplanche did, uh, and uh, the, the notion is more complex than that. Aprécu means that you always are reconsidering something from a posthumous position and giving it new meaning but it's working in this in the same mind so that this new meaning is just is not just oh okay i had misunderstood and i should have understood that no giving new meaning is actually giving a new a new capacity for action to the, to the very fact that is reconsidered so that why do we call it sexual i i never thought it uh, in, in the way i'm going to say it this is really an idea that is emerging as we speak it's because when we do the theory the metapsychological theory we are speaking in the apricot from the point of view of people who have traversed the infantile phase of sexuality and then puberty. And puberty, it's its a kind of, uh, of uh, boosting of whatever the body was able to experience prior to it, prior to puberty, and giving it this very strong direction towards the orgasmic experience for instance and this oh, it it puberty and adolescence reproblematize the sexual in in a very strong fashion so that it's impossible for us to think of the infantile excitement as if we had not gone through puberty and adolescence as, as through this bo- boosting of the sexual experience and therefore what we gather is that whatever was the infantile experience it it is now as as if it has now a major attractor which is what we call sexual and this is the source of both the boosting of the experience and the as a kind of explicitation if you want of what was infantile sexuality, but it's also uh, um, uh, a misnomer in the sense that it, it sexual for the now adult individual takes a, a more uh, limited sense, and therefore we lose sight of the the widen the wider picture. That uh, infantile sexuality represents a wider picture that can be expressed in much more ways than strictly the sexual, as in as meant by an adult who uses that word. That is in uh, in um, uh, in artistic experience, in uh, in all forms of uh, what. We, again, in a problematic term, we call sublimation uh, and so on, and which has to do with the sexual, but but we always have to be reminded that we use a word, apres coup, that is, we are reinterpreting uh, uh, what was the sexual infantile experience from the adult's point of view. Unfortunately, we have the words that we have and therefore we cannot uh, attribute new words to the infantile experience, uh, you know, freely. Uh, we So we follow, uh, Freud always started from the empirical experience anyway. You know, he, he called it sexual because he found traces of that infantile sexuality in, for instance, in uh, adult foreplay uh, in, uh, during intercourse, for instance. So he said it's sexual. Freud thought of it as a destiny, as a destination for the infantile sexuality going toward maturation. And this is one of the unhappy rewritings that, that Freud has made about it. But in a way, he was compelled to do that, I believe, because we can only look at infantile sexuality from this uh, a posteriori uh, point of view, and the words we use are those that come to us from a spontaneous connection between the adult sexual experience and the infants. hmm I don't know if I made myself clear. I hope I did. Do. <laughs> I don't know, the do, Avi, do you
1: have anything more to say about then does my question make, make sense? Yeah,
0: yeah, of course. It's a it's a very important question. It's a question that gets asked a lot. In fact, I ask it of Dominique in the book as well. Oh. Uh, and kind of like we spent quite some time with that question in the book and uh, one kind of like One of the things that has already been mentioned that I just want to, that Dominique mentioned earlier that I just want to pull in is that part of why it's sexual is because it has to do with the excitable body. Mm -hmm. Um, That is kind of like without the body's excitability, um, kind of like it would be hard to think of it as sexual. Um, But that excitability is not about arousal. It's Mm. actually about this. This is where what Dominique was saying about how we can't think of the sexual in the way that we think of it in terms of adult sexuality. That, that excitability has something to do about this line between pain and pleasure that happens when things begin to, kind of like when the when ex- excitement, when excitation, not excitement, excitation mounts. So there is this place in the three essays where Freud says in the first essay, he says all intense, intense affective processes trench upon sexuality. He does not mean you get turned on by all intense and effective processes. That's why the the word trench in is actually so interesting because it makes the link, but without giving it a one-to-one correspondence to something. And the other important element to underline here, very much connected with that, like when Freud talks about like the increase of tension and he really struggles with, is this pleasurable or is this not pleasurable? Is it pain or is it, is it kind of like, does it feel good or does it feel painful? Part of what he's still working with, and this is where Laplanche really shines um, for me, uh, is the way in which the sexual is actually also the destructive Mm -hmm. for him. Um, the sexual is not kind of like the, the question of connectedness or like the whole object relation or no. how do you have ethical sex where you recognize the other's subjectivity. No, no. Um, this is the sexual for him has more to do with kind of like both the, 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 the centrifugal, centripetal? The, the centrifugal uh, energies of the sexual unconscious, right? That kind of like the more dispersive anarchic elements that are not tamed, Kind of like the sexual is disruptive. Mm-hmm. That's why it is in everything, and that's why we're lucky that it is in everything. Because it's because of that disruption that we have a chance for mm-hmm. things to be done again. And one of the things that we end up doing in the book, without having intended to do so, is we actually begin to go in directions that think, thinking about these ideas in relation to gender, in relation to race, uh, in relation to the to to clinical moments or an experience I had like while working in, um, in forensic in forensics. So we actually, we let the conversation, we kind of follow the conversation. uh, We follow the exigency of the conversation and it takes us in really interesting places because we didn't start with an idea of these are the points that we want to hit. We really started with let's just think together Mm -hmm. and we just followed each other wherever, wherever the, the thread took us.
1: Were you, were you left with any unanswered questions or, uh, or new 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 problems that were opened up? Where you want
2: to go next, or? Well, I I, I think that uh, working with Avgi actually uh, created this uh, atmosphere where it was possible to indeed question everything. Uh, a new, mm-hmm. uh, And one of the things, for instance, that uh, I've learned from Avgi is how to rethink what in Laplanche seems a two-pronged uh, uh, possibility that is uh, seduction in terms of what Laplanche calls implantation and seduction in its violent version, which is intromission and which is uh, Mm-hmm. Pathogenic by definition, and uh, working with Avgi, uh, you know, she she made me understand how this was perhaps too schematic, too too rigidly divided, and that there was a violence in in implantation which is not experienced as violence in from an empirical point of view, uh, but which is all the same uh, it's the implantation of this disturbing element this this potentially uh, if destructive is felt as too strong a word a disorganizing force Mm -hmm. a force that resists being uh, being controlled being packet packaged into something well behaved it's it's the and I uh, in other in, in in other of my papers which aren't in the book uh, I, I compare it to, to the wild to the wild part of of a lake for instance. If you want a lake to stay alive as a, an environment, you have to respect a part of it and never construct anything near it or do anything with it. Let it stay wild. I think that we have this wild part in us, which is not wilderness in the, in the naturalistic sense, but it's this part that will always resist being organized. And I think this is the major discovery made by Freud that is that the unconscious is not the quality of not being conscious that it and this is why i think in spite of himself he he was forced to introduce the id in 1920 and something because for a time he had lost a view this wild aspect of of the mind that is the the sexual unconscious and he had desexualized it to a certain extent, but still he was compelled to use a word that would that would reflect the 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 the, the wild side of it and it is something there, it it's something I, and he uses an expression such etwas andere, something else, something else in me and this is this i think is the essence of his discover but this something else is precisely not me not ego not organized not structured and therefore it will always push for new efforts at kind at trying to 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 control it and therefore at new constructions of meanings new constructions of uh, organized parts of uh, of the psyche But fortunately, as Avgi has highlighted earlier, fortunately, we will never succeed into that because that would mean that we would become beings that could be, in Levinas' uh, vocabulary, totalized. That is, someone could really do a complete scan of our being and say, you are this. Well, fortunately, our unconscious evades our own control and will always evade control by anyone. And therefore, this is also the, the source of our fundamental freedom, I would say, fundamental liberty.
0: I mean, Laplanche talks about, kind of like borrowing Freud's terminology about failures of translation. But I think that with, with black studies and work done in black trans studies, we can also think of that as an enduringly fugitive part there's always fugitive. something that is fugitive from right. the ego's effort to appropriate mm-hmm. and formulate, and that is a very different way to look at the failure of translation. And because if if the word um, if the word um, translation is uh, problematic for the ways that Dominique was fleshing out earlier, the notion of failure. Um, is also so tied to the perspective of the ego that it really makes it hard to observe that that's actually the hopeful part. So the fact that, for example, your patients or my patients have parts of them that are not understood is not a problem, but the very condition of our work.
2: Right.
1: Yeah. I'm trying to think about... Avi brings something to, to um, Dominique's theorizing that is that really is so helpful. Um, I think in Dominique's theorizing, based on a lot on, obviously, Laplanche, there's a civilized quality to it. There's a, a latent radicality, I, I will grant, but somehow, Avi sort of brings brings it out <laughs> with a kind of a, 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 a raw street, I don't know if that's, I'm not even sure if that's a politically correct word to use, but something very current and... I don't know. I don't even know how to describe it. Maybe Avi could, maybe you have some ideas, but um, in in your books, Avi, Sexuality Beyond Consent, Gender Identity, um, how much do you rely on, on La Planche? How much of that is sort of foundational to your writing? And then, but what is this ex- other thing you're bringing in um, that makes it so spicy? <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: um, well, certainly in terms of like what disciplinary materials, I think with, I, I certainly think very much with queer of color critique, uh, with um, sexuality studies and with trans studies. But not only was I taught my La by Dominique, but so much of the work that I've written, I've also had the good fortune to be able to discuss with Dominique. and.
1: Hmm.
0: And while our work can look different in some respects, like we we are preoccupied with different objects in some ways, Uh, like I write about race, I write about kind of like sexuality per se or transness. Um, Dominique writes about sexuality as well, but not from the perspective of like BDSM or kind of like the perverse. Um, Even though it might look, I, I understand why you're asking the question, because it does look this way. But... Dominique's thinking and his comments on my work have actually been critical to me preserving the radicality of the unconscious and not letting it drop, and the, to preserving the the alienness of the unconscious and its um, its insurgent potential. I think that's that's the way to say it: that the that the unconscious has an insurgent potential, by no means certain to be realized. Um, uh oftentimes, I mean, some of the work that Dominique is doing is about how that insurgent potential actually becomes a problem. Uh, it can become a problem, right? With uh with your work, Dominique, around the, the drive to power and kind of like how that can go awry. So to me it seems that our works are like kind of like Dominique's thinking and my thinking. Certainly I'm very indebted to Dominique. But they're also like very weaved together in my mind, if mm-hmm. if I may say so.
2: <laughs> but uh, well, I, I I don't want us to turn into a self con- congratulatory couple here. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I must say that the, re- the the reciprocal experience that I had with Avi, that is of being pushed pushed further into into explaining where i was going and into explaining to myself better what i meant when i said this or that so i think of myself more as a generalist in terms of i try to to stay with um, uh, freud and laplanche's effort at coming up with a with as a as a as solid metapsychology as possible which is it, internally contradictory you could think because solid would suggest something that cannot be moved that cannot be changed no it's it's rather staying with the with the with the the, the internal fire of metapsychology but avgi is someone who who can reveal that fire <laughs> more easily than than i yeah. do probably because of the topics that she's uh, more actively involved in uh, than myself, but uh, certainly I think that uh, when when Argy said that she has learned a lot from me, uh, I I can say just the same. Uh, in terms of, uh, if if for anything, in terms of forcing me to be to explain myself to myself and and to others, because she she really and it's, this is very noticeable in the book, in our conversations, Avgi uh, would often say, let me push back on this. Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, ordinarily, I think one could feel annoyed by being pushed <laughs> back, but it's always, always it have, always has a, a heuristic effect, an extraordinary heuristic mm-hmm. effect, and I, I am so grateful for having Worked with her in in this book and elsewhere as well.
0: Can I add something to this? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I mean, anybody who has read my work knows that I'm delighted to be described as not being pro-civilization because civilizational projects are such violent projects of the state and of adaptation. But I also want to say that there's also, you know, it's a particular. Um, it's it's not usual. To have one's pushing met with a receptivity. So, Dominique is right that oftentimes I, I have done, two, I've tried to do two sort sets of things in this book around Dominique's thinking. The one has been to slow him down because Dominique is a very dense thinker, mm-hmm. um, and it is because his writing is so clear. It is easy to read a paper and feel like you understand what he's doing. And meanwhile, there are these gems dropped in between the lines that I feel like we had to open the accordion. So many times I say in the book, let me slow you down. You go from this to this. What is that about? What is it kind of like, what are you assuming in between? What are you adding? And kind of like it opens the accordion. But the other moment is when I will say to him, but wait a minute, you said this. And then earlier you said that. How do the two go together? And because we have known each other for a long time and we've really trusted each other, I think that Dominique trusted that those questions were not meant as a gotchu, and they were not. And he also received them with, huh, I see what you mean. Let me do some more thinking. And really beautiful things come up in these discussions. Kind of like I've, I've heard Dominique think many times, giving papers in our private discussions, but in this very methodical, rigorous, Encounter between his thought and my questions, new things come about, um, and it's really kind of like it's really a particular gift to be received this way. And I'm not saying this kind of like in this. I'm, I'm saying this because it is really rare in my experience for somebody to be challenged and to be to receive that challenge as an invitation to think, and to receive that for the pleasure that it is to think. Uh, I mean, that's that's quite remarkable, and it very fun
1: to to, to wrap up here and give you each a final chance to anything you want to say i'm so looking forward to the next thing both of you write you're so on the cutting edge it feels like to me do you want to say anything about what you're working on or who else should we be reading who else is exciting you what are you reading out there that that we should know about
2: um if i i answer first uh i read i try to read a lot outside of psychoanalysis um, because it, it it is also a challenge that i feel we need as as analysts uh, those of us who are interested in metapsychology we need to challenge it continuously in order not to let it freeze into a form that uh, that's that thinks of itself as a final, a final form for what what there is to say about the unconscious or the mind, etc. So we have to be challenged constantly. So I read I read a lot in uh, philosophy, also sometimes in neuroscience. Um, presently, I'm reading a book by an Italian colleague. The book is in Italian. It's it's about uh, the title is freud's school upside down where he revisits the minutes the minutes of the the vienna psychoanalytic society you know these meetings that went on on every wednesday night at freud's home and he 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 re uh, examines all that was going on there and it's so interesting because he has a a, a critical look his name is Francesco Napolitano i I wish his book would be translated someday uh, he's uh, he's written extensively and he's so uh, so rich in his uh, uh, references in in different uh, domains philosophy in particular but w- what i would say more briefly is uh, i think that as freud advised us we should be curious about everything And I tried to do that as uh, I now retired from practice. So for instance, and and this resonates with uh, something that we discuss sometimes with uh, Aghi, uh, Hannah Arendt's thinking is very important to me at this moment because of the political aspect, because of the question of power. Aghi mentioned that I'm working on the idea of power, how it connects with, with the sexual drive. Uh, and I uh, and, and I find in Hannah Arendt's work uh, such a, an inspiration, and in, in her way of also addressing things from a very original point of view. Uh, so there you go. This is what I'm working on right now.
0: Um I I also read a lot outside psychoanalysis. Um, and I try to read, I'm going to say something that's very similar to how Dominique, to what Dominique said, but I'm going to say it differently. I read outside psychoanalysis not in an appropriative way, not in a way that encounters in other domains confirmations of what we know in psychoanalysis, but I read for the way, I, I try to allow what I read to come into contact with psychoanalysis and unsettle and, and it, mm-hmm. and to see not where things come together, um, But what it grinds up against and treat that grinding as something, I mean, you hear like the sexual overtones, and treat that grinding as both exciting and kind of like as having an unraveling possibility that could be generative to my thinking. So um, I read a lot in Queer of Color Critique, um, and I read a lot about, I read a lot of Black feminisms and queer. Queer, um, and uh, women of color feminisms, but I also read a lot of philosophy. Um, it has really helped me to think with Bataille and with the Marquis de Sade. Um, and um, I read a lot of critical theory, um, mm-hmm. which I think it's very important to have like these different interlocutors that disrupt the complacency Of our psychoanalytic readings um, in ways that we don't do often enough and what i'm working on right now is what i would say is the other side of the coin of like the drive to power at least that's how i think of it which is um kind of like i'm thinking about sadism and exogenous sadism and the ethics of sadism Uh uh trying to break up sadism open up sadism's multiplicities and um, think about sadism as a form of care in the consulting room and without.
1: Well, before I sign off, let me just say what a rich conversation that was, as was the book. And thank you both very, very much for taking your time. Thank you for inviting us.
0: Thank you, this was a lot of fun.
1: So you've been listening to an interview with uh, Dominique Scarfoni and Avi Saketopolo about their book, The Reality of the reality of the message, psychoanalysis in the wake of Jean Laplanche. Uh, let's see, please contact me at philipjlance at gmail.com to let me know your thoughts and questions about the show. And thanks for listening.